my name's Brad. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at uh, Jericho Ridge. And uh, just before we start into a teaching time this morning, I want to uh, make a quick family announcement uh, for you on behalf of the leadership here at Jericho Ridge. And uh, that is, uh, last weekend, we announced uh, John and Renee's engagement, and we celebrated with them for that. And uh, this week, it's another announcement on John's behalf. Uh, John has been working for us at Jericho Ridge half-time and working at Focus on the Family half-time. And so he's making a transition to working for Focus full-time uh, at the end of this month, beginning of March. So we are uh, sad to lose him as a part of our staff team, but he will uh, continue on as a part of our congregation. And so if you or anybody that you know are interested in stealing John's job, now is a perfect time to do it. So John's our administrator at our office, and you can uh, come and talk to me. We'll have a full kind of celebration and transition as we get into the end of this month, but we just want to let you know uh, that piece of family news uh, this morning as we move uh, through the course of our time. Well, as we uh, make a shift and look into God's Word this morning, I want to ask a question for you uh, about the Bible. And the question is, how would you categorize the Bible. I mean, if you were to go into chapters or a bookstore, um, where would you expect to find a Bible in a place like that? You might expect to find it in, I don't know what section it's in actually, a religion section, its own section, so as not to be offensive to anybody, I have no idea. It's maybe not a fair question because the Bible really is comprised of 66 books, and so it might be a little bit more of a fair question to pull one of those books out and say, how would you categorize this book as opposed to the whole of the Bible because it's made up of so many different genres and themes. So if we pick on one book, the book we've been studying here in January, now it's February already. If you pull the book of Genesis out of the Bible and you were going to, uh, you worked at chapters or you worked at a library somewhere and you were going to shelve Genesis appropriately, what section would you put the book of Genesis in? It's a bit of a tricky question. How do you categorize Genesis? Where do you put it? Do you put it in, the, in with the kids' stories and say, well, it's an interesting uh, assortment of all kinds of tales of um, people and Noah's Ark and things like that. So the kids would love reading that. I'm sure we should put it in there. Do you put it uh, like that beside maybe um, Aesop's Fables or Gulliver's Travels? Is it in that kind of category? Uh, do you put it in the category of religious fiction? Is it kind of cute, quaint Sunday school stuff, but in the fiction category? Um, do you put it in the history section? How do you make light and make sense of Genesis in light of other historical stories of origins? And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Is it history? Do you put it in with the science section? And we talked a, a lot about this in our discussion of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And then we had a special evening uh, with uh, Dr. Paul Brown to talk a little bit more and explore some of those questions. And that's available all online. The audio is in the handouts if you missed that. Um, and where would you put it? Would you put it under all of the above? Some of the above? None of the above? What is this book of Genesis anyways? Is it something different altogether? And particularly when it comes to uh, unique narratives in the book of Genesis that we're going to look at this morning, uh, maybe focusing in on one of those might even be a better question. How would you categorize a story like Noah's Ark? 
where does it go in the mental filing cabinet? Does it go in under the category of a nice story to tell kids about where rainbows came from? Or does it go under the mythical legends tab in your filing system? Does it go under great stuff uh, for good movie fodder like Evan Almighty, but maybe way out of date for our day and our time? Well, I'd like to suggest that how we categorize the story of Noah's Ark and the narrative is quite important. It actually takes up almost 10% of the book of Genesis. And so clearly the author of Genesis understands and is trying to communicate something important to us in the narrative of Noah's Ark because it's given a lot of credence and play in the early part of the book of Genesis. And I think the author wants us to help us understand a lot about ourselves, a lot about God, and a lot about history and our past and our future better. So let's pray together as we dive in and we'll look at God's word together this morning. God, we say thank you for your word. We say uh, that it is our guide and our authority in matters of life. And so we want to come to it with uh, open ears to hear this morning. We want to ask questions and wrestle with things, and we want to allow you to speak to us in the unique way that your spirit does. And so, God, we pray for all of that and more this morning in our time together. In the name of Jesus, your son, we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to continue in our teaching series in the book of Genesis. And we've been uh, studying uh, through the different chapters. And so we looked at a few weeks ago in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And we examined the question of creation and said, how did it all get here? And we learned that uh, some of the words in our series subtitle, history, mystery, and theology, are important in our understanding of categorizing Genesis because sometimes we want to know things that the Bible's not designed to tell us about. And there's a lot that the author intends for us to know, but there's a lot that we're not given information about. Then in our second piece, uh, Pastor Keith remind us about how Genesis early on sets a pattern for our lives of work and rest and what Sabbath uh, looks like and is modeled for us. And it teaches us to trust in God's provision and his care, a theme which we're going to see again today. And then two weeks ago, when we came to Genesis chapter 3, we began to ask the question of, uh, clearly when we look around in our world today, all is not right with the world. And so how did everything that God declared as good in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 get to the place where it's at today? And we saw the emergence of a problem, really the problem, that humans created by God in his image have chosen willful disobedience and rejected God and so brokenness and death have entered the world. And then last week, uh, Andrew led us through a narrative of two brothers to further exemplify this, Cain and Abel, in Genesis 4. And we saw a picture of how bad it had become. And how really uh, we saw the existence of the first murder and the first person who gets tripped up by something that all of us from time to time get tripped up by, and that is going through religious ritual and motion instead of authentic connection with God in worship. And so now we come to chapter 5, all the way through chapter 10, all of which I will now read for you, and you'll be out of here by 2 o'clock sometime. Um, but we'll, we're going to highlight a few points of this, and you can go home and read the rest of the text yourself. But we do have six full chapters uh, that really form a core at the beginning of the book of Genesis here to help us understand a little bit more about the themes that have come up 
at the beginning of the book. And it uh, starts out in chapter 5 in a very orderly fashion, and it actually has its own neat and tidy little literary block where it starts and ends in the same genre. It starts and ends with a genealogy, a listing of people. It's very orderly, uh, and it, it harkens back to the order of Genesis chapter 1 that God created and set things in place and brought order out of chaos. And it comes down to the end of chapter 5, and we meet a man named Noah and who is 500 years old and has three sons. And in the middle of this uh, genealogical record there of Noah, and then picking up again in chapter 10, the genealogies of his sons, we have a story of chaos and a story of cataclysm, which we usually call the flood. And so we're going to see in a short section of text this morning how much we can learn about God, how much we can learn about ourselves and about humanity, and how much we can learn about history as well uh, from a short section of this story. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to Genesis chapter 6. And we're going to skip the first four verses because I have no idea what they're about. And we're going to start in verse 5. Um, so uh, stick with me here and don't get sidetracked about them. They could be a whole morning in and of themselves. Um, but they're definitely in that mystery section under history, mystery, and theology. And before we read the text... Let me preface it by a few comments about what we learn about history uh, from uh, an analysis of the book of Genesis and then comparative analysis and stories of origins that we have in existence from other ancient Near Eastern sources. And we can learn a lot about history and a view of history in particular uh, as we compare these things. And one of the first things to say is that the story of the flood or a flood is not unique to the biblical narrative. In fact, a narrative of deluge, of kind of complete cataclysmic flooding of the whole known world is consistent with historic and with scientific accounts. Because almost every culture that you can go to in different parts and places in the world has a reference to this same event and story. It accounts for a worldwide or global flood. We would understand maybe if we found stories of a flood narrative clustered in and around a particular geography and we thought maybe they had a really bad year and it rained and the, the rain came down and the flood came up like the kids song. But this is something that no matter where you go in the world, when archaeologists and historians can tell us about all of these different cultures and all these different reference points that all say, you know what, at some point in their history, they reference this flood narrative. Almost every single culture has a flood story, which should tell us a little something about a beginning posture of categorizing this story, that we can probably safely move it into a continuum of history section. Because the widespread fossil evidence and the geodesic changes and observable processes today that we can look at and trace back to their origins in this narrative uh, all point back to a time of universal global coverage by water. And so if, that, if that's something that interests you, then there's lots of reading that you can do outside of the context of our morning. But the intriguing thing to me is when you read all of these different flood narratives and you try and put them side by side, there's a lot of similarities, but there are a lot of differences as well. And particularly of difference is the question of causality, the question of why or what caused the flood to occur. So, for example, if you look at the Babylonian story of the flood, which is called the Gilgamesh epic, in it, 
the gods send a flood on the earth because they have a problem and the earth is getting overpopulated. And the problem that the gods have with the earth being overpopulated is that it's too noisy for them. And the noise from all of these people is coming up to heaven now. And so they have a little gods meeting and they say, what should we do about this? I know, let's wipe them all out with a flood. So the gods are really angry with this noise. They can't sleep at night. Boosh, lightning bolts from heaven, flood. Now they still appoint a person that is saved through the flood. So they kind of, they build this person a boat. They and their family get on it, intriguing parallels, all kinds of animals. Off they go in this boat that the gods made for them and then they're saved and they continue on with the story. And the gods give them a very stern talking to about not being so loud uh, after all this is over. And that's kind of how the narrative ends. Uh, and so when you look at the scriptures, you say, well, what's different about the biblical narrative of the flood? Let's read together and discover the answer to the question, why is it that God sent the flood? I'm going to be reading from Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 5, going through to verse 8. If you don't have a, a Bible with you, you're welcome to wander back to the Welcome Center and grab one. They're available there. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, just keep that with you. Take it home and uh, contact us, and we'd love to uh, meet with you and explain a little bit more about it and help you get started in reading it regularly. Uh, verse 5 of Genesis 6 says this, The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything that they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry that he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. The Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the very face of the earth. Yes, I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry on the ground, the birds in the sky. I'm sorry that I ever made them. But Noah found favor with the Lord. The question in the biblical narrative of why God sent the flood is connected to the questions earlier that the text has brought up for us in chapter 3 and chapter 4 of how bad could it really get? How far-reaching were the effects of Genesis chapter 3 and the deliberate choices that humanity made to reject God? The, it, the the text invites us to wrestle with the question, did it just taint them in some way? Or were they, so were they were pretty much still good with a few bad apples sprinkled amongst the bunch? Or was it something deeper than that? And Genesis 6 gives us a clear and early anthropological picture of what we can know about humanity. And when we put ourselves and our, uh, our own lives and then humanity as well as a whole... Under the microscope, we learn here again that something of God's design for humanity. And we learn this tension yet again between freedom and boundaries. So it's like Genesis chapter 5 takes us back to Genesis 1, where God is creating, he's bringing order out of chaos, and then humanity gets involved, and through our intentional choices and action, it's like we try and uncreate things that God has created. And in Genesis 3, we talked about how we have our first example of freedom that God has granted being abused and flaunted, boundaries being crossed, and consequences begin to come online in the world. And then again in Genesis chapter 4, 
uh, with Cain and Abel. God gives freedom within limits, and Cain makes one choice, and his brother Abel makes another choice. God gives them freedom, and we see that it's because of what was in Cain's heart that this was the reality. And so now this is the third time here in chapter 6 in Genesis that we have an example of human violation requiring God to act in some way. And so we learn that there's freedom that God has created for us, but that there are also boundaries to that freedom. And that there are purposes to those boundaries. In uh, chapter 6, verse 2, it says, I will not strive with humanity forever. We can see that God is presenting a picture to us that humanity cannot act without any consequences whatsoever and however they choose. There is incredible freedom that God has given us, yes, but there are also limits. And just like the narrative of Cain and Abel, we see that when we push against these limits and boundaries, they come from a particular place. They come from what's going on inside the human heart. Now for us, when we think about the human heart, we have an advantage in terms of, well maybe an advantage, of we think medical technology, we think of all the things that we know about the human heart, we think of that organ that pumps blood, but when the Bible uses the word heart, that's not what it's referring to, it's not cardiovascular in any way. Or when we use it in a song, sometimes you'll hear lyrics in songs that we sing, something like, Lord I give you my heart. Uh, and we're not talking about the physical organ that pumps your blood. The Hebrew term for heart has to do with the, the center of human intentionality and action. And so relatively early in the book of beginnings, we clearly see and are, are given to understand what our heart looks like, what that center of human initiative and intentionality and action looks like. And God opens up the picture for us, and it doesn't look pretty. He gives us a clear and early indicators of the depravity and the depth of depravity of our hearts as human beings. And the language in Genesis 6 that portrays this is pervasive. The problem has gone beyond any one individual. It affects and affects every facet of humanity's intention and actions. Look at the words used in chapter 6, verse 5. Every impulse, it says, every thought, every action is always, only, and every day bent towards evil. One of the commentators on Genesis says it in this way. Every time the human community faces tension in the problems of life and boundaries, rivalries, limitations, those are resolved in ways that are contrary to the creation vision that God has laid out. The creation vision of Genesis 1 and 2 lies in ruins and wickedness has invaded the very heart of human response. It's not a pretty picture. A later writer in the scriptures in the book of Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says it this way, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can even understand it? Who can know what's going on inside of there? And so in chapter 6, 
we're given to understand that the choices that were made in chapter 3 and chapter 4 and are beginning to play themselves out across the whole spectrum of humanity, that this is not isolated instances, but that there's actually something in each and every human heart that requires a remedy. And so we hear of God's plan to remedy the depth of despair that this situation has brought And on first brush, because we have the other thousand or so pages of the Bible, this seems like, to us, a bit of an odd plan as to what God is going to do. He says, I'm going to wipe things clean, and I'm going to start over again. Well, recently, uh, in our house, we inherited a computer that belonged to my father-in-law. And it's a great little desktop machine. It's a few years old. does everything that we needed to in terms of word processing and the simplicity of stuff that the kids do. But it's way slower than it should have been, like a machine that belonged to somebody else and was used for other purposes. And uh, it does things that you don't want it to do. So you'll be doing one thing on another program will pop up because it thinks that, you know, its previous owner is trying to do something. And that's not what you intend to do whatsoever. So, I mean, there's a couple of solutions that you have when you inherit a computer from somebody else. You can just try to kind of clean things up bit at a time and try and delete this program and get rid of that stuff. And and it, it can work a little bit. But when you talk to computer people, they give you a suggestion that's a little bit more comprehensive than that. And they say, you know, if, if you're having that much trouble with it, you probably just want to wipe the hard drive clean and you just start again with it. Just start from fresh. And you have way less trouble with it uh, in its entirety. And so in some ways, we have to ask the question, is that what God is trying to do here in Genesis chapter 6? Is he trying to wipe the hard drive clean and start over again? Uh, He's intervening. What is his intended desire in this intervention? Is it to restore humanity to its original functionality and purpose, like you try and do with a hard drive? Well, in, in his actions, we learn something powerful about God. Look with me at Genesis chapter 6, verse 6 and verse 8 again carefully. And look at the words that are used. The New Living Translation that I was reading from says, I'm sorry I ever made them, is what God says, which is a little bit of a weak translation of the Hebrew that this text was originally written in. The NIV says, uh, I regret that uh, I made them, which is getting a little bit closer But regret to us still seems like, oh, shucks, darn, maybe that wasn't such a great choice after all. Uh, English Standard Version, the ESV, is probably the, the closest. It says, the Lord was grieved in his heart. And I want us to stay there for a minute because there's an important difference that comes up between how God is approaching this problem and how I would approach my problem with my computer. And it helps us understand the differentiation between me cleaning up my hard drive and God's sending of the flood. At first brush, God sending a flood to wipe out all of humanity seems almost vindictive and cataclysmic. Humanity's evil, boom, wipe them out. But when we read the text carefully, we understand that God's judgment doesn't come from that place of vengeance. God's judgment actually arises out of his sense of of grief. Is God somehow, in the sense that we think of anger, is he stomping his feet up in heaven, saying, oh man, they violated my plans. Well, that's it. I'm really mad now. 
That's not the picture that emerges out of Genesis chapter 6. The picture that emerges is God is grieved and moved with anguish to the point of tears. Which counters a lot of notions that some of us might have about God. One of the notions that it counters is this idea that uh, God is, or the creator is, a watchmaker who set up the universe according to certain laws, designed it in Genesis 1, chapter 2, wound it up so that it had lots of playtime on the watch, and then just left it to run its own course. And the laws of the mechanics and thermodynamics and gravity and all of those other things will just play themselves out over the course of history, and God can just watch as a disinterested observer almost to see how things play themselves out. Well, it counters this because here, but a few short generations after God has created, he's stepping into the picture and actively involving himself in the redemption and the process of the human condition again. And so the picture that God is a watchmaker is not biblically sustained, that he just created the world and set it up to function in a certain way. It's not a God who's distant or uninvolved somehow callously removed or busy off doing other things. God cares about what goes on in the world. And God's judgment arises out of his grief about the state of the world just as much as it does out of his anger. And the image that comes to us here in Genesis 6, 6, and 8 is that it's almost a parental image. That just like a parent, that he's been moved by the pain of a world so distorted and so disrupted by the choices that those created in his image have made. And so he moves to intervene and to set things right again. And this is where, again, another count, we need to counter another image that sometimes comes up when we talk and think about God. I get a little bit testy when people say things like, phew, I'm so glad God isn't like he was in those Old Testament days. I mean, nothing but judgment and anger and lightning bolts from heaven, people dying, being wiped out by plagues, all that kind of stuff. I'm so glad that Jesus came along and now God is full of love towards me and his heart is open and that that nasty God from the Old Testament is kind of passe and now God is all love and this is great news for us. I get a little bit annoyed when people talk like that because that picture of God is unjustified by either a reading of the Old Testament or the New Testament. The picture of God that emerges as you read through the narrative of the Scripture and as redemption continues to unfold is a picture of God that doesn't separate those two halves of his personality in some way and relate one to the Old Testament and one to to the New Testament. Theologian Walter Brueggemann says it this way, that the portrait of God in Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, shows us not a God that is enraged over the violation of creation. It shows us a picture of a God in tears. Not only does God grieve over the world and the state of the human heart and the state of the world that has been so closely and so quickly undone by those created in his image and given free choice. But he also provides a deliberate way of escape 
from the dangerous waters. God doesn't just say, listen, this, is, this has got really bad. We're going to start completely from square one, hard drive wiped, that, that every kilobyte of data is gone. And I'll just recreate things again myself. God says, no, we're going to wipe out. But there is a family, a man named Noah and his family, through whom I will continue to work and be in relationship with. And so God puts together a plan, and it's a bit of an odd plan. He finds a righteous man, and he gives him a bit of an odd project. He says, I want you to build something that no one has ever seen before in the history of the world. It's a massive boat called an ark, which for you Super Bowl fans is 1.5 football fields in length. Uh, I'm going to ask you, Noah, to build this ark to address a cataclysmic problem that no one has ever heard before or seen before, in fact. It's called rain. So much of it that it makes Langley look like a North African desert. And I'm going to come, rain come from above and from below as well. That's how bad this is going to get. And he gives this project to a 500-year-old man and just like in the movie spoof, Evan Almighty, this bizarre project would have no doubt attracted the attention of the entire world at that time. Because Noah works on this project for a hundred years. And he keeps working at it and working at it. And the text doesn't give us a lot of information as to what happened during those hundred years. So we don't know. Did Noah, did Noah use this as a witnessing tool to his friends? What are you doing, Noah? I'm building an ark. Big rain going to come. What's rain? Well, God's going to send judgment on the earth. You're going to have a choice. You want to come with us on the boat? This can happen for you too. We're going to have fun. It's going to be a little cruise. Um, you don't know what that is, but there's going to be lots of animals. You know, it might be a little smelly, but, you know, well, where are the animals? I don't know. God's going to look after them for us. It's all speculation. We're not given to understand a lot of what Noah was doing, except that the period of time that he and his sons worked on this project was a hundred years to build an ocean-going vessel in the middle of dry land. So the theme of God providing a way of escape, it isn't like God decides one day, humanity has gotten so bad, zap, they're all done, we're, we're finished, we're going to start this over next day. God still continues in his mercy for a hundred years with Noah and his family working on this project, ostensibly inviting others to see what it would look like to participate in God's way of escape. And this theme of God providing a way of escape is all throughout the Bible. What are some other stories that you can think of where God provides a way of escape for someone? Shout them out. The, the thief on the cross. Yeah, God, Jesus extends an offer to him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Yeah. The Red Sea. God parts the waters, dangerous waters, leads them through uh, Israelites on dry land, and then the Egyptians try to follow and cataclysmically are destroyed. What else? Betty. Israel coming out of Egypt. God provides a way of escape. Yeah. What else? Sorry? Jonah. Yeah, God provides, the text says, God provided a fish for Jonah when he got tossed out. Yeah, what else? Other stories of God providing a way of escape. Yeah, absolutely. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace. Yeah. Same one. All right. Yeah. 
David, King Saul, always God is protecting and providing him a way of escape. Rahab, a cord let down through the window. Over and over and over and over again in the text of scriptures, this theme which we're introduced to here comes up again and again. God will provide deliberately a way of escape from the dangerous waters. Whether it's Jonah, Jesus calming the sea, the Exodus, the stories go on and on and on. And often there's a theme of water also connected to this. And the powerful reality is that, they, again, this is not the work of a distant historical deity. This is God actively involved in the world and actively involved in the lives of those to whom he cares for, demonstrating his provision by a way of Noah's Ark. And we're invited in the course of this narrative to answer and ask the question, where have you seen this personally in your own life and experience? Where in your life has God provided a way of rescue and escape from turbulence in your own experience? Some of you are walking through this right now. Some of you, the water is high and it's threatening to overwhelm you. Some of you have family situations that feel like you're taking on water so quickly you may not be able to hold it together for another week. Some of you are trying to find work in slow arenas of employment. Some of you are in a place where you can't make ends meet financially and feel like the water is rising again and again and again. Some of you are in marriages or in relationships where they're breaking down almost week by week by week and you see the water rising above your head and you're not sure if you're going to be able to swim and there's strain beyond what you think is repairable. Your kids are pushing boundaries beyond what you think is appropriate or you don't even know how to engage in the conversations with them. Someone around you is sick maybe even close to death. And you feel like the water is getting higher and higher and higher, and you don't know how long you can swim or tread water for. And one of the things that we're invited to observe in the narrative of the flood is to ask that question of what is God's word to us in that situation. In Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 and five, hearkening back and using the exact same language, it says this. When you go through the waters, God says, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. For I am the Lord, your God of Israel, your Savior. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Now notice in that text what God does not say. God does not say, I'm a magic genie. When you're in deep waters, rub the lamp three times. I'll pop out. Poof, your difficulties will go away. No. There's a simple promise there. I will be with you. And he invites you to cling to him more deeply and more personally, and with a deeper level of intensity and intentionality than maybe you ever have before. And this promise is reiterated in the flood narrative. Noah builds a boat without a rudder or a sail, 
any navigational ability whatsoever, as near as we can discern, because we have the dimensions. This is like a big cube of wood just floating and bobbing up as the floodwaters come. Noah has no control whatsoever. And you see that as you read through the end of the story, as the floodwaters begin to recede. Noah doesn't know what he's to do. He doesn't have a clear plan all mapped out for this little ride. He is entirely at God's mercy and in God's hands. God sees and sends the rain. God sends the animal. God opens the door. God closes the door. God opens the floodgates above and below. Start to finish in every aspect of this story, Noah and his family and you and your family are in God's hands. And it's here too that we see God's plan for your life and for human history clearly unfolding. Because the flood comes and Noah and his family are saved to start again only to blow it by the end of chapter 9. Before we even get out of Noah's story, we clearly are given to understand again that Noah is a righteous man, yes, but he's not perfect. And so God didn't find somebody in whom there was no fault or blame, say, I'm going to start over with this perfect family. Noah and his crew mess it up just like you and I mess it up. And so here, too, we're given to understand that Noah's not perfect, that we all make mistakes, and our only recourse in that is the grace and the mercy of God. We're given to learn from this text about God, that God is the one ultimately in charge, both of history and of humanity. And so the language of this text, actually to return back to our initial question, helps us catalog it or categorize it just a little bit. Because it sounds odd, but if you were to ask me, where would you put the story of Noah, and where would you categorize that in the section of books, I would actually put it in the business section under accounting. Which sounds like a bit of an odd phrase, except in chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, all of the language that God uses is accounting language. It's a question and language of ledgers in an accounting book that on the ledger of human catastrophe, the ledger is getting longer and longer and larger and larger and larger. And so it's as if God opens his accounting books and sits down and says, hmm, I need to address the accounts. I need to do a little bit of an audit on these accounts. I need to look at the columns and the ledgers and balance the ledgers in the check and put a check and balance in the place of human wickedness and human, humanity's proclivity to choose wrong. God is, is reconciling his books and enforcing a system of checks and balances. All through the story, the language is the language of accounting practices. And so when we think of God being sorry that he created humanity, it's a language of audit, a language of analysis, looking at them and bringing things back into right relationship with one another. And it's here that we learn our lesson perhaps most powerfully that God is ultimately in charge of both humanity and history. 
because as we read on through the biblical text, we understand that one day my personal history, your personal history, the history of all of humanity will wind itself up and will expire. And the Bible says that on that day that God will pull out his accounting ledgers and assess the outcome of your life and mine. And the words used in Genesis 6, 6 and 8, all the way through of that accounting ledger is the exact same language that's used in that day and in that time. The Bible calls it the day of the Lord. And so the driving question that the text wants us to hear is this question of when God comes in judgment, when God comes to reconcile accounts, who can stand? Can anyone survive? Can anyone by their own ledger put it forward and say, God, here's my ledger book. Looks pretty good to me. What do you think? And the text and the divine answer for Noah in Noah's day and time and for us as well is, yes, when God comes in judgment, people can survive, but there is only one way, and it's only by the grace of God. And so yet again we see in the flood God's incredible heart of mercy towards us. His incredible opportunity that he extends to you and to me. The words in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 says, it's not by works of righteousness. It's not by keeping our own records of anything that we have done are we saved. But according to his mercy, he saved us. And listen to the water language, by the washing and renewing regeneration of the Holy Spirit. When you say yes to Jesus and to his divine grace in action in your life. So I'm going to invite the team to come up and we're going to sing a few songs that actually mirror and reflect the way that the narrative moves throughout the course of Noah's journey and his experience. And the question that I would ask for you is, where are those ledgers in your life today? To spend a few moments asking God to assess and reconcile the books with you. What would that look like? And what would that reality be like? And so the story of Noah reminds us yet again that we can't save ourselves. It's only by God's grace that we are provided a way out. And so you may want to take time to just reflect and say, God, I thank you for that. I thank you for making a way for me. And if that's never been a prayer that you've ever prayed, and you'd like to explore what that means to pray that for the first time and commit your life to Jesus and throw yourself firmly on his mercy and his grace, then our prayer teams are available at the tables at the side, and they would be happy to pray with you. You may want to talk with someone that you came with here this morning. Maybe you want to say, God, I am so grateful for your mercy at work in my life. It's been demonstrated. You want to celebrate with somebody. The team is available for you at that as well. Maybe you just want to spend some time in confession and saying, as I look at that ledger in my life, God brings to my mind things that may not be right, and I need to spend some time making those things right today before I leave. And so the team will spend time leading us in songs that reflect all of those things. And so I just invite you, if you want to, wherever you are, you can kneel, you can sit, you can stand, and the team will continue to lead us, and you can make your way over to the tables for prayer at any time.